0: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Adam Cambier, uh, and I'm an assistant attorney general in the Civil Rights Division uh, at the Massachusetts Attorney General's office. Uh, Today, we have uh, a really exciting panel where we'll be discussing uh, the various ways that we've seen censorship being on the rise in the classroom, uh, ranging from book bans to restrictions on uh, what kinds of information teachers can present to students, uh, and so on and so forth. It's a problem that my office has certainly been looking very closely at, and I can attest from firsthand experience that this topic is more important to understand than ever before. Uh, And we're very lucky today to have uh, three esteemed panelists uh, who come from diverse backgrounds uh, and experiences uh, to share their perspectives uh, on this critical issue. Uh, First, we have Kwasia Ali. Uh, who works as a staff counsel in the in-house legal department for the Massachusetts Teachers Association, or MTA, uh, the 107,000 member state affiliate of the National Education Association, uh, where she represents MTA, its affiliates, and members in all phases of administrative and court litigation. Uh, While at MTA, Kwasia has presented at workshops on educator rights in teaching an anti-racist and anti-bias curriculum, as well as advised local associations facing book banning campaigns on First Amendment considerations. Uh, prior to working at MTA, she was in private practice and a field attorney with the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, our next panelist is Chris Urchel, uh, who is an attorney at GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, also known as GLAAD. Uh, Chris works extensively in New Hampshire to address challenges confronting transgender and gender nonconforming youth in public schools, through litigation, legislation, and policy. Uh, He represents DEI administrators in litigation against the state of New Hampshire, challenging the constitutionality of the so-called divisive concept law that the state enacted in 2021. Uh, And he has worked closely with school districts in both Massachusetts and New Hampshire courts to defend policies that protect educational opportunities for LGBTQ students. Uh, Chris also has fought against policies that would harm transgender students, including excluding them from school bathrooms and sports programs uh, in the the New Hampshire state legislature, in school boards and in courts. Uh, Chris has an adamant belief that transgender students, like all students, uh, will thrive when given the opportunity to learn in a constructive and supportive environment. Uh, And our last panelist is Jessica Lewis. Uh, Jessica has been an attorney at the ACLU of Massachusetts since 2019. Uh, In her role, she works on issues related to free speech, technology, and criminal justice. Uh, Jessica co-authored ACLU of Massachusetts' comment on the state ballot initiative that sought to have voters ban the teaching of divisive comments. Uh, And she helped write the open letter from the ACLU of Massachusetts and GLAAD about the ongoing push to remove books from school libraries. Uh, Prior to her joining her current role, uh, Jessica was a legal fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center in the LGBT rights and special litigation practice group. Uh, So we can't see everyone who's attending, but please give a warm welcome to our panelists. Uh, And with that, I think we can get started with the program. So the first question uh, is for both Jessica and Chris. Uh, Many of us have observed attempts, uh, sometimes successful attempts, uh, to ban or limit what schools can teach to students uh, ranging from bans on critical race theory, uh, to calls to ban books representing LGBTQ plus communities uh, in schools across the country. Uh, Jessica and Chris, could you please give us a sense of what the national landscape looks like with respect to these classroom censorship efforts?
1: Sure, and excited to be here. I would just start off by giving a broad strokes kind of overview before turning over to Chris to talk more about specifics. And to start now, we really saw uh, these censorship efforts not only gain public attention, but also deeper traction during the Trump administration with a kind of intense focus on what conservatives took to calling critical race theory or CRT. Now, just clarify here that critical race theory is indeed a legitimate course of study that has been around for more than half a century, uh, and it tends to focus on examining and at a post-secondary or graduate level Uh, the impact of race on American uh, policy and how racism has played a role in creating certain structures uh, that bar people of color from gaining equal access to privileges and services in this country. Now, for example, this could like examining the role of redlining and neighborhood segregation and how that played a role in creating urban ghettos and food deserts. But in recent years, we have seen this term kind of co-opted and used to mean something more akin to teaching students and not a elementary and secondary school level civically, uh, that America is evil, inherently racist, uh, the white children should feel bad for being uh, white based on past actions and that black children should feel victimized and stuck. Uh, now, although, this kind of teaching was not actually going on uh, in classrooms um, or there's really no evidence that uh, this kind of teaching was being uh, taught or this kind of ideology was being taught. Uh, This narrative frame was used by more than two dozen states to introduce measures that would have barred uh, this kind of teaching Uh, and it became really a drive to ban the teaching of large swaths of American history from slavery to Jim Crow and more. And for the past three years we have really seen our classrooms become kind of a battleground for free speech and just to give an example of the scope of these kind of measures uh during or argument before a florida district court over that state's stop woke act uh counsel for the state asserted that that act would bar university professors from supporting affirmative action or as the court noted defendants assert that the idea of affirmative action is so repugnant that instructors can no longer express approval of affirmative action as an idea worthy of merit during classroom instruction they cannot even organize in class debate between guest speakers about the merits of affirmative action if one of those speakers were to support it under that act such a viewpoint would be pro state discrimination or hate speech and i want to hand this session over to chris now to talk about more of the frame of these laws and how it is that we got here
2: yeah so I- I think a lot of folks know that in the wake of um, the murder of George Floyd in 2020, um, there were a lot of um, a lot of uh, companies and a lot of government entities as well started instituting more um, trainings and workshops for staff around uh, around around issues of racial sensitivity and um, and diversity training that kind of thing DEI instruction as it was often called and um, And then in 2020, in late 2020, uh, the previous administration introduced an executive order that attempted to prohibit um, ostensibly um, those sorts of DEI trainings for federal employees and then also for federal contractors, right? And uh, the lengthy executive order, you know, had a lot of wordy uh, elements to it that tried to, you know, tried to basically condemn certain types of trainings uh, for, for these government employees or government contractors. And um, they tried to do it without saying explicitly that we don't want people to learn about DEI issues. We don't want people to learn about racial sensitivity. So instead, uh, the, these, the principles that were enumerated were, were long-winded and hard to follow. And um, immediately after the executive order, they were challenged in court by uh, people who provide DEI trainings, who said um, uh, who said this violates our First Amendment rights. You know, especially when when it comes to working with just federal contractors. How does the government have a right to interfere with our ability to teach our programs? Um, in you know in these contexts, and the laws were struck as being void for vagueness. Um, But almost immediately state legislatures across the country, including in New Hampshire, where I do a lot of work, um, have had adopted similar laws that apply not only to the government employee context, but also to schools. And using a lot of the same language, a lot of the same confusing, enumerated rules and going a lot further than just talking about race um, in in the workplace or in the school classroom, but also talking about other other issues like sexual orientation, gender identity, disability status, and trying to make it so that all of these uh, topics were taboo in classroom discussions, um, you know, throughout the state. And so one of these laws went into effect in um, New Hampshire in late 2021. In, uh, In very soon after we filed a lawsuit, I'm glad, along with ACLU of New Hampshire and several other organizations, uh, including the uh, American Federation of Teachers, uh, the New Hampshire chapter and the New Hampshire chapter of the um, of the NEA also. Um, So, so it's a pretty big lawsuit. Has a lot of different You know, people involved in it but essentially the claim is that the law is unconstitutionally vague and, you know, at this stage we've had uh, a motion to dismiss uh, that's been heard and rejected by the judge and the judges ruling is pretty clear that uh, that uh, you know, on its face that, that, that he's going to rule that the, um, that the statute is unconstitutionally vague, but he did want a record. So we're in the middle of discovery, and we're going to do summary judgment motions before this goes on, and inevitably will be appealed to the First Circuit. And the reason I'm telling you all this is just because it's something to look out for that's local, and will, um, you know, create precedent that will apply to Massachusetts after the First Circuit makes a decision. So it's something really interesting to watch. But what I really want to say about the unconstitutional vagueness of the way that these proposals are written, they can't say what they mean because if they said what they mean, they would be saying exactly what Jessica was saying before is we don't want kids learning about affirmative action. We don't want kids learning about the history of racism that shapes this nation. And if they said that they knew, they know they would lose public support and they know that they would lose in court, but they, so they try to say it in a vague way that, uh, you know, roundabout way with, with language that nobody can comply with and it has this chilling effect on, on, on teachers across the state where, where these laws are enacted and um, creates a lot of harm. And so fortunately, so far from what I've seen, courts are um, responsive to the issue that that, that vague language is uh, you know, per se
0: unconstitutional. So I think uh, Chris, you're highlighting your work in New Hampshire uh, is a great segue into the next question. Uh, it's, this is clearly a really pressing national issue, uh, but I, I'd like to hear more about uh, sort of what's happening here in Massachusetts. Uh, Jessica, have we been seeing sort of any similar efforts concerning classroom censorship or book banning uh, here in Massachusetts? Uh, And if so, what does that
3: look like?
1: Unfortunately, the answer is yes. Uh, But luckily, uh, we also have seen successes in terms of uh, local communities pushing back and preventing uh, these type of censorship efforts. Uh, So first we saw in 2021, uh, members of the Republican Party introduced a ballot initiative uh, that would have banned uh, the teaching of and these so-called divisive concepts, which is uh, the term that's being used to describe what it is that is being banned. Uh, particularly, the ballot initiative would have prevented the teaching of anything that would have made students feel uh, guilty on the basis of their race. And luckily, our Attorney General's office issued a declination letter which did not allow uh, the initiative to be placed on the ballot on the grounds that it violated our state protections around free speech and something akin to due process. And the AGO opined that the initiative would have not only and duly interfered with teachers ability to speak, it would have done so in a manner that really made it unclear what it is that they were not allowed to say. Uh, However, the push in our state did not uh, stop there, rather we saw it spread uh, to local communities and kind of morph in terms of what it is that it was targeting. Uh, First, we saw uh, warrant articles being introduced at annual town meetings that would have banned the teaching of divisive concepts at local school districts. Uh, This most notably occurred in the town of Mansfield, uh, but there the town council kind of following the AGO's lead. Uh, wrote a legal opinion that that Warren article would have violated the law on several grounds, and therefore was not included in the vote before the town. Uh, but next, we saw, and we are still seeing, efforts to remove books from uh, school library shelves as well as from uh, public schools. And these books that are being targeted largely are those that represent members of the LGBTQ communities as well as communities of color. Uh, and A. Plume and GLAAD uh, recently wrote a letter uh, about these book ban efforts and the constitutional issues that they present, uh, and we have been grateful to see uh, towns being able to use the legal analysis provided therein uh, in order to push back on some of the efforts to the cause to remove books from schools. Uh, I think one of the books that we saw and really across the country, uh, I read that it's one of the most targeted books is a book called All Boys Aren't Blue. And this pushback against citizenship uh, most notably happened in Medsville and also old Rochester School District. Uh, And although it is less about what is being taught in classrooms, it is worth noting that the group parents Defending education has become quite active in our state Um, And around the issue of extracurricular activities in schools. Uh, Now, PDE, or again, Parents Parents Defending Education, describes itself as a national grassroots organization working to reclaim our school from activists imposing harmful agendas. Now, this group sued the Wesley School District over that school, uh, the school district's creation of affinity groups for students of color, uh, which PDE said made children feel that they were part of the problem because of their skin color. Now, Wesley settled that lawsuit in February, 2022, uh, after agreeing that all students would be welcome in affinity groups, regardless of their affinity with that group. Uh, And then PDE next filed two complaints with the U.S. Department of Education against the Newton School District. And the first of those complaints stated that because a Newton school put on a play that was with students of color and was about people of color, Uh, the school discriminated against uh, white students. The Department of Education recently dismissed that complaint, but PDE still has a second complaint pending that alleges that uh, Newton School District's scholar program that is geared towards black and Hispanic students uh, violates the law. Now this is just some but notably not all of what we are seeing uh, happening in our state right now.
3: Uh, thanks, Jessica. Uh, the next question is for Quasia. Uh, how,
0: if at all, has class have classroom censorship efforts impacted Massachusetts teachers? Uh, there have been, for example, a few high-profile incidents here in Massachusetts over the last several years uh, concerning the display of pride flags or Black Lives Matter flags uh, in classrooms, uh, and then parent-led backlash to these displays in Stoughton, Halifax, a few other places. Uh, Is this something
3: that we're seeing percolate in local uh, school districts or school boards? Quasi, I think you're muted. Um, Yeah, thanks for that question, Adam. Um, I think you sort of piggybacking Uh, off of um, of what Jessica said. Um, We have had uh, situations in many of our uh, local school boards where teachers have been um, impacted by, uh, you know, um, community pressure regarding books, uh, regarding um, display of items in the classroom that reflect the students or teachers' political beliefs, um, and of course, regarding um, curriculum issues. And, um, you know, teachers believe that no matter what the zip code or background or racial background of, of their students that, you know, all kids deserve an honest um, and accurate education and that it's important to teach um, both, you know, the good and the bad in our history, so that we all, you know, better understand our our lives and cultures and, and experiences. And in Massachusetts, we're actually really lucky that our Department of Education has standards that um, encourage our teachers um, to to create curriculum that is uh, designed to, you know, inculcate respect for our commonwealth's um, ethnic, racial, and um, cultural diversity. Um, that being said, you know, our teachers work within the context that, um, particularly K through 12 level, that the district has managerial prerogative over the curriculum, you know, in and, and classrooms, we're looking at, um, you know, where the first amendment considerations at issue regarding, you know, whether the speech is within a, a teacher's official duties. And, you know, with books, we're looking at, you know, are the districts, um, following protocols, if protocols are in place, are they being followed? Are there viewpoint discrimination issues? So um, we have been dealing with some issues in our districts. Uh, you mentioned Halifax. There was an issue there in 2021 where students and teachers placed peace flags in their classroom, um, in the elementary school classrooms, um, you know, in response to some anti-bullying issues. And uh, the principal uh, removed those flags after receiving parent complaints. Um, and then the, superintendent then, you know, followed up and said, you know, we're going to enforce this ban um, and that we're not going to have a discrimination based on a But at the same time, we're not going to have discrimination based on a particular viewpoint. So they they um, they put forth a, uh, a rule that <clears throat> was, you know, um, essentially aimed at preventing viewpoint discrimination. And, and so we're following that situation to make sure that that rule is uh, actually enforced. And then, and so in um, the superintendent posted no political flags rule in the school, <clears throat> that had the result of of teachers being forced to um, take down their pride and Black Lives Matter flags, um, and there was a huge um, sort of um, backlash from teaching community, from students, from com- from community members, and so um, administrators responded in that district by putting up safe face stickers in the classroom. And said that you know, buttons and lanyards were okay. Um, and so there's ongoing um, ongoing uh, sort of um, action with regard to to those uh, those directives um, in terms of teachers who are protesting against that directive. Um, and then in Hanover, um we uh, recently is in this school year um had an issue regarding uh, the book that Jessica mentioned, um all boys aren't blue. Um, and again, we were looking at uh, the removal of a book um, from a uh, a high school um, shelf um without the protocol being followed. And so uh, members of our local and Hanover were instrumental in um, in making sure that uh, the protocol was followed. And um, so we have, you know that that situation going as well. Um, Deska mentioned, um, warrants. Um, in in Mansfield and Wellesley that dealt with uh, divisive concepts, curriculum, and so we're, you know, our locals were instrumental in fighting back on that. And then um, in Ludlow, um, you're probably going to hear at some point in this um, presentation about the the Ludlow lawsuit um, involving gender identity and and some students, Um, but before that lawsuit, there's actually um, a um, parent backlash against uh, sex education curriculum and materials used in that curriculum and um, and books providing, you know, resources on gender identification or, you know, what they called trans indoctrination. And so um, our members, um, along with um, community members, um, you know, were a presence at school committee and defending the librarian who was um, providing these important materials. Um, and so, you know, whether it is curriculum or book bans or um, forms of expression, um, we have been dealing with these these issues um, in Massachusetts. Um, some bright sort of um, bright light on the horizon. Um, we do have a a bill that is pending. Um, it's I don't think it's come out of committee, but it's called an act relative to anti-racism, equity, and justice in education. It's uh, House Bill 584, Senate Bill 365. And it says, um, in relevant part, that education in, in dismantling racism be taught to all students, that teachers and school counselors be trained in pedagogy and practices that uplift students of all ethnicities and backgrounds, um, that truth and reconciliation regarding slavery, genocide, land theft, and systemic sem- racism is, is centered, um, and that students of color and immigrants uh, students in different communities and indigenous communities find the rightful place reflected in the history that they learned. So that obviously is, um, is very um, hopeful. And uh, you know we're hoping that that, uh, that bill will pass because obviously it will be um, tremendous for um, our students to see the, the totality um, and the richness of our, our history um, have that taught them in, in our, our Commonwealth schools. Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, We have
0: a question uh, from someone uh, in the audience, uh, and and whoever feels like answering this, please jump in. The question is, how would you rebut the argument that in practice, diversity uh, is often interpreted to mean non-white, and uh, the argument that equity necessarily requires actions
3: based on race?
2: I would push back a little bit and say uh, that that neither uh neither so diversity means diversity right it means having more than one perspective and more than one point of view and I think that recognizing that racism uh has affected how uh in 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 workplaces and in the school setting how people are segregated and um and kept out of institutions because because of race um has affected diversity diversity of like, like I said, diversity of thought, diversity of viewpoint. And so I don't think that, uh, that being aware of the effects of racism is the same thing as race conscious um, you know, actions that, ex- that discriminate against people on the basis of race. Um, similarly, I don't think that equity requires uh, race-based r- responses to uh, people, but instead requires a sensitivity to, uh, to differences in opportunity. Um, that are related to, oftentimes related to a history of racism. So I just don't think that there's um, that that it's impossible to have uh, race, um, sorry, race sensitive um, awareness in institutional settings, uh, and also comply with our constitutional mandate that we all uh, come before the law as equals with that respect to race. Does anyone want to add anything to that? Do you think that I answered that um, appropriately?
1: Do. And I will only add that diversity means a lot of different things. It can mean socioeconomic status. It can mean your physical and mental condition. Uh, However, what we are seeing is it kind of focusing on diversity uh, as it relates to race. Um, And that's um, a lot of the efforts that we're seeing are on that particular prong of diversity uh, right now and not challenging uh, diversity as it means in its other respects.
3: Thank you. Uh, Jessica, it seems to me that classroom
0: censorship, uh, whether we're talking about book banning, curricular restrictions, or other sort of divisive concept issues, uh, might have some free speech implications. Uh, Could you please talk to us about what those implications might be?
1: So in addition to our advocacy, or just kind of set the ground here, in addition to our advocacy here in Massachusetts, Uh, Right now, I'm aware that there are at least three federal cases uh, challenging these classroom censorship laws, Uh, and they are in Florida, Oklahoma, and New Hampshire, which Chris has already talked about. And the legal claims that they are presenting around these censorship issues are largely the same and tend to fall into three general categories. Uh, The first being um, uh, students' free speech rights to receive information ideas. Uh, The second being the free speech rights of university professors, uh, known as academic freedom. And then the third being uh, due process protections against vague laws. Now, for the first, and where we are talking about public schools, both the U.S. Supreme Court as well as the Massachusetts Supreme Digital Court, which is obviously our highest court here in our state, have repeatedly made clear that students' free speech rights do not stop at the schoolhouse gate. And again, one of the rights that students have is the right to receive information and ideas, which the Supreme Court has explained is a necessary predicate to the recipient's meaningful exercise of his own rights of uh, speech, press, and political uh, freedom. It's kind of a penundra right where we're talking about the First Amendment. Uh, And this right protects students from official conduct, which is intended to suppress their access to certain ideas. Now, it's worth noting that there is some debate about whether or not the Supreme Court's case establishing this right is still a good precedent. And for um, those in the Senate's information, this case is PICO versus Board of, or Board of Education Island Trees versus PICO. And it was a uh, plurality, plurality decision uh, back in the 80s. Um, And although there is some question about whether this remains good law, it's important to note that here in Massachusetts, our state constitution has oftentimes been interpreted as providing more protection Mm -hmm. for free speech than uh, the First Amendment. And further, it has never been in doubt that the First Amendment prevents the government from prescribing what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, and other uh, matters of opinion and that uh, the Supreme Court has repeatedly asserted that the vigilant protection of constitutional freedom is nowhere more important than in American schools. Uh, now for the second legal claim, and though I phrased that before as a right belonging to university and college professors known as academic freedom, I will note that the SJC has not limited the notion of academic freedom to only post-secondary education teachers under our state constitution. And therefore, there is good argument that can be made that here, again, in Massachusetts, public school teachers have some degree of free speech right in the classroom, but the exact contours around that right have not uh, been as defined when we're talking about secondary and elementary school teachers. Notably, however, federal federal courts of appeals have largely rejected claims uh, that um, elementary and secondary school teachers have any academic uh, freedom rights uh, during classroom discussions as students in their classrooms are there under compulsion and therefore are something like captive audiences. Now at the university level, however, the law is very clear that professors can neither be compelled to speak nor made to be silent on certain ideas or viewpoints. Now in Florida, again, where the state is uh, battling the Stop-Woke Act, Uh, the state argued that the university professors do not have this right of academic freedom and that when they speak, they are speaking on behalf of the state and therefore their speech can be regulated as government speech. And this is important because government speech, uh, the Supreme Court has made clear that the First Amendment does not apply to it. Uh, However, the district court, uh, Florida, reframed uh, this government's argument as such uh, they argue, or the state argues, that because university professors are public employees, they are simply the state's mouthpieces in university classrooms. As a result, defendants claim the state has unfettered authority to limit what professors may stay in class, even at the university level. Alternatively, defendants suggested even if this court is required to balance the state's interests against the professor's First Amendment rights, the state's interests always trump the professor's rights. According to defendants, so long as professors work for the state, they must all read from this uh, same music. Now keep reading from the Florida District Court opinion because although it's 137 pages, it's actually full of really great rhetoric that's very quotable. Um, Now, obviously, given that uh, reframing of the government's argument, you can uh, tell that the court did reject uh, the argument and held that the state cannot limit what professors, uh, cannot limit professor speech on the basis of viewpoint. Uh, and it granted a preliminary injunction against the implementation of the stop Woke Act. Uh, and that case is now on appeal before the 11th Circuit. And it's important to note that the 11th Circuit recently uh, denied a motion to stay the injunction pending appeal. Now, the last legal argument is uh, the constitutional due process claim. Now, in general, laws must be precise and narrowly drawn, particularly where they infringe upon free speech rights. And the problem with these so-called of concept laws is again, that they were written to ban a kind of amorphous uh, idea and therefore they tend to be vague about what it is that they're actually attempting to prescribe. Uh, And they don't tend to make it clear what it is that they are not allowing teachers to teach. Now take for example, the prohibition against espousing a view that people should feel guilty for actions taken and pass by members of the same racial group. Uh, one of the drafters of the Massachusetts Ballot Initiative that would have prevented this teaching uh, stated that that uh, proposed law would mean that subjects like slavery must be taught without bringing skin color into it. That's a is that quote there. And then the question becomes how do you teach slavery? And then at what point during your lesson have you crossed the legal line? Now, regardless, it is worth noting, or regardless of the legality of these laws, it is worth noting that the impreciseness of them has created an undeniable chilling effect on speech. And so, by them, we have seen schools across the country where these laws have gone into effect, aside entire subjects from the curriculum, and largely those subjects are ones that concern the treatment of people of color in this country.
3: Uh, thanks, Jessica. Uh, Kwasia, we just heard Jessica talking
0: about the chilling effect uh, that many of these types of laws can have on teachers' speech. Uh, do you have any insight into how teachers are reacting to these types of incidents uh, or what they might be concerned about in this kind of climate? Uh, and what concerns have you been hearing from the Teachers Association membership? So,
3: um, You know, our teachers, they want to have honesty and education for their students, and they believe that Um, that their students are capable of learning about racism and sexism, class oppression and gender identity, etc. They want to be sure that kids in the classroom are feeling visible so that they feel affirmed and valued. And that, you know, as educators, they're the ones who should um, really play a key role in determining um, what and how the curriculum is is delivered to their students. so at MTA, you know, our locals, and I would say, you know, obviously for um, MFT, the, the Mass Federation of Teachers as well, um, teachers and educators across the Commonwealth have been very active in pushing back against any sort of efforts to, um, that would sort of impede on their um, their ability to deliver, you know, um, a robust curriculum to their students. So um, I mentioned Stoughton in um, the issue of, of, of expression in the classroom. And so um, in that situation, um, our local association um, organized the community, um, organized students um, to uh, protest against uh, the policy that was adopted that led to the um, taking down of the Black Lives Matter and pla- Pride plans in the classroom. Um, we had several members who, um, you know, uh, refused to obey the directive um, and were disciplined for that and those disciplinary um, that discipline is still you know, under review. And um, they've organized, again, continue to organize the, the uh, community uh, to have turnout for, for public protests to ensure, again, more full and robust political expression in the classroom. Um, and members are still you know, wearing buttons and lanyards um, with those expressions um, in the classroom um, in, in spite of this. And so uh, that's sort of an example of you know, our members engaging in concerted activity under chapter 150 to support these sorts of efforts and and, um, political expression in this in the schools. Um, in Hanover. um, The librarian um, at the high school um, led a team to um, update the um, high school collection policy and get it approved by the school committee to address the issue of um, book banning in that community and um, they were very excited that they Felt like they they won that process because this committee, the committee failed to approve a stipulation that um, challenged books would be put in a restricted section pending review. And so the current policy um, provides that a, a challenged book will stay on the shelf pending review by a reconsideration committee. Uh, committee. And there has been no formal challenge um, to the book in question. It was um, All Boys Aren't Blue um, or any other books at this point. And that member actually then went ahead and went to her own school committee um, in her own community and spoke out about um, book banning issues that had arisen in that community as well. So um, we have you know members who are sort of you know organizing, making sure that protocols in place are um, being followed with regard to book removal and getting involved in their own community. Um, and then um, spoke briefly earlier about uh, Mansfield and Wellesley, where our association um, organized community members against warrants addressing um, divisive concepts. And then again, you know, in Ludlow, where um, our local association um, supported a librarian who was um, uh, providing um, gender identity materials for for um for students and um, supported that member um, at school committee um, as well as making sure that the district did its part to support that librarian as well. So, um you know, members engaging in concerted activity as well as, um non-legal political action and community organizing to try to address um, some of these issues and that's that's an ongoing effort thank you uh
0: we've talked a little bit about parent-led backlash uh and I think linked to that we we've seen a lot of rise in parent-led calls for identity policing in schools uh particularly concerning transgender students identities Uh, For example, there's a lawsuit now before the First Circuit centering on the Ludlow School District in Western Mass uh, and its transgender inclusion policies. Uh, And sort of this ongoing lawsuit follows a national trend targeting inclusion and respect by schools of transgender student identities, uh, sort of under the guise of parents' rights. Uh, Chris, I know you and I worked together on this issue before. Uh, Could you please tell us a little bit about what we're seeing? Uh, both here in Massachusetts and across the country uh, on this topic and how the concept of parents' rights fits in? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um,
2: So this is a super important issue affecting a lot of school districts across the country right now. Um, For students who identify as transgender or gender nonconforming, I think that everybody understands, um, you know, intuitively that schools have an obligation. Public schools have an obligation to provide a safe and supportive and affirming learning environment for those students, just like all students, right? And equal educational opportunity, uh, you know, the promise of Brown versus Board of Education requires that every student have um, those have those opportunities available to them. And so, um, and so, it's really important that schools provide a safe place for kids who are developing um, their every adolescent who's in a public school anywhere in the country is is going through a process of identity development. And with um, LGBTQ students, that includes coming to terms with an LGBTQ identity. And um, schools often come into contact with information that kind of signals to them uh, what's going on with the kid. Um, There are some parents who are advocating for special rules when it comes to the de- development of identity for LGBTQ students and only LGBT- LGBTQ students. Meaning if uh, a student wants to start using a different name and pronouns, parents want to be notified. Or if, um, if uh, students start expressing their gender differently in school, either through clothes or mannerisms or anything else, parents want to be notified. And so we're seeing a typical fact pattern emerge in different school districts uh, across the country where um, where school's affirming to a student says, you get to be who you are, we're gonna respect you, we're gonna provide a safe learning environment because that's what we do, we're a public school and that's the right kind of learning environment so everyone can learn. And then, um, and then parents find out because there's their, their, their child for whatever reason decided not to have a conversation at home with them that, uh, that, they, that the kid is identifying differently at school than they are at home and then the parent files a lawsuit, um, you know, claiming that the school violated their rights by not immediately notifying them of how the student was developing their identity in the classroom. And, um, and, and those lawsuits have been taking hold you know, across the country. And of course, uh, there is no, the, the, the claim that's brought in each one of these, in, in each one of these cases is, is about a constitutional parental right, right? Um, under the 14th Amendment, parents have the right to direct the upbringing of their children. These lawsuits claim that that extends to the right to immediate notification about how um, how students are identifying at school when it comes to gender identity. And um, of course, no courts have, to date have held that the Constitution does require such notification. There is obviously nothing in the Fourteenth Amendment that says parents have that right. Right? Um, you know, the the right to direct the upbringing of their children, of course, is steeped in history and tradition, and it is a right that's been recognized by courts forever, and that includes the right to decide whether or not to send your uh, children to public school, um, but it's never been held to, uh, to, to, to require that schools transmit your values as a parent to the students, right? And that's kind of what these parents are asking for in these cases. And, um, and so Ludlow, Massachusetts is one of these places where uh, a parent brought a lawsuit claiming a violation of parental rights and uh, that, that is a case that was argued to uh, the district court, of, sorry, it was filed in the district court of Massachusetts and it was argued on a motion to dismiss and the judge ended up dismissing the case. There was an amicus brief filed by GLAAD um, in that matter. And now that case is um, going up to the first circuit and, um, and, and so briefing is underway right now in that case. And so that's a really interesting thing to watch because um, you know it's not just what, the court says about whether or not there's a constitutional right to to automatic notification about a, a student's name and pronouns. It's also about how the court decides to talk about transgender students and how the court court decides to um, you know um, to to address their needs when transgender people aren't actually parties to the case, right? And that's a really interesting question. I think it's just something worth watching in the First Circuit because in the coming months, we're going to hear arguments in this case, we're going to see a lot of briefing, and then a panel of the First Circuit is going to be making a decision on on this issue. And they're going to be talking about transgender kids. And again, no one in no party to the case is actually advocating for transgender students. Similarly, in the New Hampshire uh, Supreme Court is considering a case that um, arose out of Manchester school district with very similar facts it's like the third lawsuit that was brought in a New Hampshire uh, Superior Court with similar you know kind of challenges to school policy and. um, And, and so it's another one of these cases where parents are arguing they have a right to immediate notification about how a student is identifying with name and pronouns at school. And um, the New Hampshire Supreme Court just heard oral arguments in this case. We're waiting for a decision from them. And meanwhile, there is uh, legislation that um, is pending. Uh, There's a vote on Thursday in the New Hampshire House on this so-called Parental Bill of Rights. The Parental Bill of Rights does go through and enumerate a lot of rights that parents already have. In some ways, it does it inartfully. In some ways, it does it just fine. And then it has these provisions tacked on about about parents having the right to know how their kid is identifying with respect to gender. Mind you, the bill doesn't mention any other aspect of child identity of development, it just singles out transgender and gender nonconforming youth and it says they're in a special category where parents have Special rights to notification that don't apply to any other student, and they're asking. I mean, I mean, the legislature is poised to potentially pass this uh, legislation, and I'm I'm not sure how that's going to affect the Supreme Court's evaluation of the constitutional claim that's raised in that case. um, Whether or not the law ends up being voted through by the House on Thursday, and whether or not the governor ultimately decides to sign or veto that um, that bill um so that's something else to to watch that's happening and it's not just happening in new hampshire uh it's happening everywhere in the country there are parental bills of rights that are being filed um everywhere and some of them you know, ostensibly are, are actually trying to say, well, parents are getting really concerned about what, you know, what's happening with kids in public schools. They had special um, insight based on remote uh, tele- tele-learning where they actually saw inside the classroom and it raised a lot of questions and parents have concerns and, and legislatures are trying to grapple with those and school boards are too. Um, and so and some, some of it's probably really good faith effort. and then sometimes though you'll see this very blatant attempt to single out one group of students like LGBTQ students and subject them to a whole different um, you know set of requirements and you know set of surveillance and monitoring and reporting requirements that don't apply to other students. And it's really something that is troubling to see because, Um, I think that from the proponent's perspective, it's just a natural thing to to say like, well, yeah, I want to know if my kid is transgender or is identifying as transgender at school, right, but it's a whole other thing when you're thinking about how we're singling out one group and creating special laws designated toward just identifying them and treating them differently from other students, which is exactly, uh, you know, what civil rights lawyers, um, you know, fight against on a regular basis, and it's you know there's a bigger context of course right now where there are over 500 bills were filed in state legislatures across the country targeting lgbtq people mostly trans youth and um and and you cannot consider any of this without looking at that context of of of, of, of a large-scale backlash that's happening throughout the country um against uh the rights that transgender people have um, have managed to 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 cobble together over the over recent years, and so um, definitely something to watch out for. And it's um, you know important to note that this is all happening at the local level. So, anything to add to all of that, Adam? I know I didn't talk about a lot of the cases that are going on, including the case where you uh, you know filed a brief uh, in in the Fourth Circuit where they're going to be deciding the same kind of constitutional
0: issue. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to add anything about that. Um, I think the uh, the brief that my office uh, has filed—it's uh, it, not in the Ludlow case uh, yet—that uh, that's still pending before the First Circuit. But we we filed a case or a brief in a very similar case uh, in the Fourth Circuit concerning Montgomery County Board of Education uh, and a policy that they had that I think does something very similar. And what our brief emphasized uh, is sort of the historical role that's that. School's discretion has played uh, in in shaping school policy. The idea that uh, we we trust educating to educators, uh, and uh, a lot of the time, uh, policies that may not bear sort of an obvious relationship to curriculum or instruction or things like that, still have uh, very deep and very powerful connections uh, to sort of the general uh, the, the general school environment, such that. Uh, schools are still granted discretion to, to shape uh, how they treat uh, LGBTQ students uh, in order to promote uh, both uh, sort of general values of acceptance uh, among student bodies, but also in order to promote uh, better educational outcomes for those students in particular. Um, and I think that's, that's the emphasis that we've been placing, but I, I think because we are, we represent the state, uh, that we we uh, are are foregrounding uh, sort of the the role that the state plays in this, but um, it, it's it, it's very interesting to hear about uh, sort of the the tack that Glad has taken and that we've seen in other other approaches around the country
2: yeah yeah i mean this is a new area um, for people to be litigating in and arguments are kind of novel um you know the argument that parents have this right in the first place is a novel argument and so and so our responses to it have all been varied and um you know we're trying to figure out the right way to talk about these issues because another thing i want to say is like you know schools really do want to work in partnerships with parents and that's ultimately the goal right um it's ultimately the goal to include parents in everything that's going on at school, and uh, the question is just who's the right person to to be coming out at, um, to to a student's parents? Is it the student, or is it the student's uh, teachers, or is it the school administrators? Right? Um, and and when should that happen? Should it happen when the student is ready to have that conversation, or should it happen when the school decides to, or when you know courts decide that uh, that that those conversations should happen? And um, And I think I think these are really important questions to be to be answered I mean I I I talk to school counselors all the time we're in these situations, what do we do when we're confronted with you know an issue where where there's a student who's not out to their parents how do we support them? And I say, like, first, you know, you should always tell the student that schools are a public place, information flows freely, um, back and forth, you know, through the school doors. So there's nothing that a school administrator or school teacher can do to be a black, you know, to gatekeep the way that information flows. So there's nothing you can do. Their parents are going to find out eventually somehow, some way. And so students need to know that. The second thing that I say is you should sit down with that kid and make a plan and make a plan about how that kid is gonna to talk to their parents, what resources and support they need to be able to do so, and you know what fears and concerns they have and whether or not there's anything that the school can do to be supportive and help make that happen. And so I think there's a mistaken impression that schools are trying to keep information away from parents. And in my experience, that's absolutely not the case. And that's certainly not the conversations that I'm having with uh, school counselors and um, school teachers and school administrators on a daily basis, I, I feel these kind of calls very regularly. And I'm always encouraging parental involvement. And I'm always hearing um, you know, that, that that's what schools are doing and want to be doing. They want to support students and they want to support families, right? And so, um, and so it's just, I think it's a, a disconnect between uh, what parents are perceiving is happening or what some parents are perceiving is happening versus what's actually happening. Um, so yeah.
0: Um, I think we have time for one more uh, question uh, from the audience. Um, And this was one that's been sort of in the box for a little while. Uh, Someone in the audience asked, quote, why can't parents oppose explicit or pornographic material in the school? And I'll let whoever wants to feel that feel that.
1: So I I would just say, uh, I think a good framing of this question is, um, it is always true, um, or it has been true, that schools can um, kind of limit the content of what is being uh, discussed in the classroom. However, what can't happen, and I think what the courts have been very clear about, is that uh, once you make the decision about what the curriculum is going to look like, et cetera, what you cannot then do is only uh, teach one particular viewpoint on that content such that you are not having kind of the round full discussion about the particular subject, but rather you're only presenting to students one limited viewpoint, whether that be liberal or conservative or anything, but you must kind of, you cannot say that you cannot teach, for example, about um, evolution and you can only teach about creationism. Um, And I think in the school libraries, et cetera, uh, there is some uh, discussion or discussion that uh, schools and librarians are exercising in terms of uh, making sure that what's in library shelves is age appropriate. Now that uh, there is, uh, obscenity and lewd actually do mean uh, something Uh, In the law, in terms of when we are talking about whether or not something is explicit or pornographic, uh, it can be that maybe it's not age appropriate. Um, I don't think that we have ever really seen true pornos uh, being put on school shelves. But I think the debate and what's happening right now is gearing towards something like you cannot teach about the Garden of Eden and until Adam and Eve bite the apple because before that time they were not aware that they were nude and therefore uh, it was pornographic. And I think that's kind of where the conversation is going and it is kind of having an effect of uh, kind of budding on or limiting free speech in schools on the uh, discussion of viewpoint.
2: Yeah, and I would add that to that—that that objections to certain content and claims that certain content is pornographic or obscene—we've seen repeatedly uh, that it's based on expressions of LGBTQ identities from the characters, and oftentimes it's uh, also from from people of color, uh, black people in particular, where 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 if the characters or even just the author of these materials are are people of color, that the that the content is is. Um, is is examined with a different lens than if uh, fr- from certain you know vocal minority of opposing parents than if um, if the if the if then if the content were just um, not about LGBTQ characters. I mean, expressions of sexuality are really common in young adult literature. Um, And, and yet it's mainly um, when it involves LGBTQ people or people of color that we're seeing challenges to it. And so it kind of, you know, reeks of, or it has indicia of viewpoint discrimination. And now the way to guard against that, of course, is to make sure that you have processes in place where when, you know, material is challenged, that there is a process where like Okay, is this obscene or not? Let's have a process where it's evaluated by the appropriate people with the appropriate skill to do so, and that if a book is removed, there's actual thought put into whether or not this is done arbitrarily or with you know you know with targeting any particular group of people, or whether it's done in a uh, you know in a in a holistic way that says like oh actually this for our community for our school community's values this particular work it does cross the boundaries of what we think is acceptable for our young people to see, which of course is okay, as long as it's not done in a way that's discriminatory um, based on viewpoint and violates those principles under the First Amendment.
0: Thank you. Uh, So there's one last question uh, for everybody. Uh, When we think about the future of classroom censorship and what might be on the horizon, uh, what are your expectations or your concerns? uh, And how can lawyers who are listening today uh,
3: become more engaged in this topic. Um, I, I would just say, in terms of um, you know what we have always encourage our members to do is just you know be sure to vote. Um, your vote counts. Um, you know who's on the school committee is going to be you know determinative of you know what sort of educational quality is going to be established. So um, make sure that you vote for people who are aligned with your um, your values. Um, you know, be you know, promoting anti-racist, anti-oppression, anti-bias um, curriculum. You wanna make sure that if there are people in there who have those similar values who will be making decisions that are gonna impact not only what you teach, but you know, what your students are gonna be learning. Um, you know, go to school committee meetings. You know, if there's a divisive concepts or a book banning issue on the agenda, make sure that you listen and, and speak up and make your voice heard um, so that they know sort of what the community um, is thinking and feeling. because they, they won't know unless you go and, and, uh, and make your voice heard. And certainly, you know, on the other side of these issues, um, you know, we saw in old Rochester in November, there was a, a very vocal contingent of folks who were um, coming out against some of the books that we've mentioned on this in this panel. Um, and so it's important that the other side be heard as well, and that their voices be heard and, and accounted for. Um, And certainly, I would say with regard to your local education association, you know, there are campaigns that are going on and, and, uh, you know, we we appreciate the support of of our parents and our community members um, as we work to, um, you know, fight against these issues as they arise in our, our school districts.
2: Yeah, if I can echo with a quick uh, with a quick anecdote. Recently, in Milford, New Hampshire, there was a big you know debate in the school community about bathrooms and the school had been you know kind of going back and forth about how to address the issues bathrooms with respect to gender right and access to bathrooms based on gender identity this this was the issue and and it was uh raising a lot of like you know a lot of people were showing up at school board meetings a lot of people had opinions and the school board was really struggling with how to deal with it and they were polarized where there were two uh on one side of this issue and two on the other side and one school board member in the middle who was like you know trying to find middle ground And then there was a school board election where two board members were replaced and overwhelmingly the vote was, uh, you know, was in support of transgender students. I mean, the the two school board members who ran on this, uh, you know, on the idea that like, oh, we're gonna take the position that we support transgender students in our school district. Those are the two that won. And it's not a particularly progressive community or anything like that. But on this issue, that's what happened when there was an election that came. And so I, I think that when, um, you know, typically when you see communities uh, trying to grapple with where they fall on issues. I think supporting students is, uh, you know, is where communities tend to land. So I think uh, local engagement, just like Raycio was saying, and, you know, paying attention and voting is like, just like among the most important things you can possibly do to ensure that your school community is reflecting your values, your values as, as a voter, as a citizen, as a lawyer. Um, I just, you know, I, I I can't emphasize enough how much of a difference it makes just to be engaged, especially because turnout on those kind of elections is really, really low. Showing up at school board, you know, you have so few people generally. So, you know, this is this is where the policy happens, right? And and um, we should all be making sure that 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 our communities know what our values are.
1: And where these issues do come up, people can contact the ACLU of Massachusetts Legal Resources Team. Uh, We have gotten involved in some issues, but generally we may be able to uh, provide resources or more general ideas um, about um, particular actions or legal analysis, et cetera. But people can also sign up to volunteer for our action team.
0: I think that brings us right to three o'clock, which is the end of the program. So um, thank you very much to all of our attendees uh, for taking the time to listen to us. Uh, Thank you to our three panelists for uh, sharing their knowledge and expertise. Uh, And thank you to the BBA for creating the space to discuss these very important issues. Uh, So again, thanks to everybody. And uh, I hope everyone has a great afternoon.